An offer of peace from Putin, so long as Zelensky accedes to his demands. A clampdown on freedoms in Moscow. And a new pro-war movement organized under a letter, Z. I'm incredibly fortunate to be joined by Anton Babashin, editorial director at the website Riddle Russia. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Hey, my pleasure. Anton is a must-follow throughout this whole, I mean, incredibly tense, tense period has enriched my Twitter feed. I will, at the end of the show, be letting Anton go and I'll talk about Priti Patel and the mess our government have got in over Ukrainian refugees. We are on day 12 of Russia's war on Ukraine and not much has changed over the past three days in terms of who controls which parts of the country. In the north of Ukraine, Russian troops continue their slower-than-expected advance to the capital, Kyiv. On the outskirts of the capital, suburbs such as Irpin suffer continued Russian shelling. Meanwhile, in the south of the country, Russian troops have begun shelling Mykolaiv, which is en route to the port city of Odessa. But the big story on the ground has not been about territory gained or lost, but rather whether civilians will have the chance to flee the fighting. What you're seeing here is the flight of civilians from Irpin on the outskirts of Kyiv. The town sustained very heavy shelling over a number of days. In order to make journeys like this safer, Ukrainian and Russian negotiators had agreed to implement local ceasefires known as humanitarian corridors for civilians to escape, but proposed ceasefires failed on both Saturday and Sunday. Ukraine claimed that continued Russian shelling made evacuations unsafe. And today, a proposal from Russia to create six humanitarian corridors was rejected, as four of them would have only allowed refugees to flee to Russia or to Russian-backed Belarus. A spokesperson for the Ukrainian government said, this is a completely immoral story. They should have the right to evacuate the territory of Ukraine. Russia wants to supply humanitarian aid for a picture on TV and wants the corridors to lead in its direction. The Ukrainians are clearly worried that their citizens will be used as propaganda tools if they flee Ukraine to enter Russia. But the need for some kind of solution is urgent, as this footage recorded by journalists for the New York Times shows. A family of four were killed in that attack as they tried to leave the town of Irpin. Vladimir Zelensky promised revenge. Meanwhile, the Americans are encouraging Poland to supply fighter jets to Ukraine. This is Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs if, in fact, they choose to provide these fighter jets to, to the Ukrainians. Uh, what could we do? How can we help to make sure that uh, they get something to backfill the planes that they're handing over to, to the Ukrainians? That was Blinken trying to increase the military threat to Russian invaders. And today there was a sliver of hope that Putin could be brought to the negotiating table. 
Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kuleba, have agreed to meet on Thursday in Turkey. It would be the first time since Russia launched its war that senior politicians from both sides meet. And Russia also suggested the terms it might bring to the table. A Kremlin spokesperson said today, We are really finishing the demilitarization of Ukraine. We will finish it. But the main thing is that Ukraine ceases its military action. They should stop their military action and then no one will shoot. They should make amendments to the constitution according to which Ukraine would reject any aims to enter any bloc. We have also spoken about how they should recognize that Crimea is Russian territory and that they need to recognize that Donetsk and Lugansk are independent states. And that's it. It will stop in a moment. Anton, I want to bring you in on this offer or announcement or comment from the Kremlin spokesperson. Lots of people are reading this as maybe Russia rolling back somewhat. Maybe they've realized this war isn't going as well as they'd hoped and no longer do they want to dethrone Zelensky. They'll settle for what what seemed like their, their initial demands before this wholesale invasion went forward. How seriously do you think we should take what this spokesperson is saying? presume you could pretty much take it seriously, but I'm not really seeing how this is a step back from any previous uh, position, how it is easier for Ukraine to accept what is being proposed, because essentially what it says is you have to stop fighting, you have to lay down your weapons, then you have to recognize certain territories being taken away from you. I'm not really seeing that uh, negotiation position, essentially. Uh, Zelensky would not agree to that for a moment. But um, clearly Kremlin here is trying to uh, to give you this, look, this is on Zelensky. Uh, as long as he is not ready to compromise, you have people dying. If he just says yes, we'll stop bombing you uh, the next moment. To push the point a little bit, the, the rollback, I suppose, and I think what people are interpreting when they suggest that, is that at the beginning of this war, when Vladimir Putin was talking about denazification and then essentially saying that all the people in government in Kiev are drug addicts and Nazis. It seemed pretty clear that his red line was that there had to be regime change in Kiev. Now from this proposal from the spokesperson, it seems like they've potentially given up on, on that very radical demand and are demanding things which could be implemented by Zelensky, even if you say they are unreasonable and he won't accept them. Do you think that's not any kind of change at all? Well, I would say that there was always kind of mixed um, mixed signals coming from Moscow with regards to what exactly denazification is. Right in the beginning of the war, uh, Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, said that, yes, we do recognize Zelensky as a sovereign leader. So on the one hand, you have Putin saying that, look, there, there was a coup. We have this unjustly staying in power group of people, essentially Nazis, drag addicts, whoever. But at the same time, Peskov is saying that, look, Zelensky is a sovereign who we recognize, so we could do negotiating with. And um, you don't really know which one is the official position. It could be both at the same time, depending on the circumstances. We have been reading leaks, I don't know how credible they are, that Russia was proposing the idea of Zelensky indeed staying in his place as a president, but appointing a pro-Russian prime minister, essentially. So that was sort of the compromise, but that is uh, not really a compromise that Zelensky can go for after 10 days of, of the war anyway. And uh, the Ukrainian side rejected Russia's proposal. It was, was uh, still clearly stated by the, um, by the Russian side today that you know, we've not reached any, any sort of compromise. We're not uh, anywhere forward than we used to be.
we had Anatole Levin on last week, who's who's quite keen on some sort of compromise being reached, or I mean, you, you might not like the phrase compromise, but some sort of peace deal being reached, even if it is on somewhat unfair terms. I think he'd probably argue that some sort of neutrality looks inevitable. So to avoid a very long and bloody war, an, an imperfect solution would be better than none. You seem to disagree. You, you think it would be almost silly of us to suggest that Zelensky could even consider this proposal from the Russians. No, it's not what I think about it. It's just uh, how, how it looks on the ground. The Ukrainian side is firm on standing their ground. Uh, the entire kind of propaganda in, in the good sense of the word, the entire posture of the state of Zelensky, of the army, of the people being mobilized, is that they are going to stand their ground. And Russian demands are essentially, you have to recognize your defeat. And these two positions are so far apart that I'm just not seeing how you could bring them closer together under what one may call a compromise. I don't mind a solution that could stop a war immediately. Just with what we have on the table, I'm just not seeing how you could take those components and make it into something that would work. Clearly, Moscow is ready to waste as many lives as necessary on the Russian side, on the Ukrainian side and reach what it wants. I mean, it's so deep in, in terms of the repercussions for Russian economy, for Russian stature, for pretty much everything, that I'm not really seeing what's on the upside. I mean, why would you compromise now when you're so far in? You've done so many crimes, you'll have to be somehow managing your economy through the worst crisis uh, seen in the last 30 years. So why, why stop at this moment? I would love uh, a solution that would stop this violence and probably everyone, you know, sane and rational would. But just taking and looking at what we have on the table doesn't seem to give us components for that solution. So I'm just being realistically pessimistic. And you, you think that applies to both sides, essentially, right? So from, from what you're saying, there's no reason, you know, Putin doesn't have any interest in stopping given he's gone this far and the Ukrainians have no interest in compromising given that actually their resistance is going better than expected and the you know whatever Putin is likely to offer in the next weeks or months will, will remain unacceptable. So you, you think basically there is, there is no route out of a war going on for, well, months or even years potentially? I don't know about years, but certainly a number of weeks, uh, could be months, yes. We're seeing that U Ukraine... Uh, so one of the Russian points, for instance, the military infrastructure. Ukraine now gets the supplies from the West. They are not going to stop. They're just going to increase. So they're going to be replenishing at least some of the military infrastructure that Russia is uh, allegedly, you know, aimed to, to, to destroy as one of the primary targets there. On the Russian side, you have the entire army uh, designed for this war already on the territory. Russia is, of course, interested from the very kind of Details of how the operation is going should be interested, at least, in, in uh, stopping the conflict as soon as possible, because we're seeing that Russian forces are not really capable of occupying territory, are not as efficient and effective as uh, probably they anticipated initially. But again, given how deep they're in and what their positions are, it's just I'm not seeing as of now uh, where the compromise could be reached. How far Russia can scale back and to what extent that Delensky would be ready to compromise, at least now, while you know he's still standing there, have the army and they have Kiev. We're going to come back later in the show to the extent to which Putin's military ambitions are unrealistic and what that could mean for 
elite politics in Russia. I want to now go to the crackdown that's taking place in, in Moscow. So far, Putin's invasion of Ukraine hasn't quite gone to plan. Russia's leader wanted a quick victory and for his forces to be welcomed as liberators by their fellow Russian speakers in the country. Instead, advances are slow, Russian troops are taking heavy losses, and Putin has provoked a popular explosion of Ukrainian resistance. Unsurprisingly, he doesn't want this news to get home, and to that end, international news outlets such as the BBC and Deutsche Welle have been blocked in the country. More significantly, the last vestiges of independent Russian media have been shut down. TV Rain was Russia's last TV station critical of Vladimir Putin. Under government pressure, they recorded their final broadcast last Thursday. Russia's parliament has also passed a law imposing a jail term of up to 15 years for spreading intentionally, quote, fake news about the military. Again, the law will have the most chilling effect on Russian journalists, but international outlets such as the BBC, CNN and Bloomberg have also stopped reporting from Russia while they establish whether the law would put their own staff at risk. Access to Facebook and Twitter is also blocked across Russia, while heavily armed police check the phones of pedestrians. Footage from journalist Anna Vasilyeva shows police officers stopping people in Moscow, demanding to see their phones and then reading their messages. It's reported that people were detained if they refused. Those brave enough to protest the war have also faced arrest. 4,300 protesters were arrested on Sunday, bringing the total since the start of the war to over 10,000. That's according to OVD Info, an independent protest monitoring group. Anton, at the beginning of this war, lots of people were saying a key impact of it will be to turn Russia into a more blatant dictatorship or even a police state. Is that what we're seeing here? Oh, that's definitely what's happening in Russia much faster than most of us anticipated. I mean, none of this, none of the processes we're seeing now have started with the war. I mean, you could trace it back to, depending on how you want to frame it, to 2012 to 2014, there were all critical moments in Russian history where things were turning for the worse in terms of media freedom and civic freedoms in general. But what has happened in the last two weeks were extremely rapid. I mean, we have seen the almost entire remnants of independent media being just destroyed, obliterated. More than uh, 150 journalists have left Russia out of fear for their safety. Essentially, we have war censorship now. I think you basically mentioned with regards to this uh, 15 years of jail time for fake news with regards to war. And as far as we could tell, the way that Russian law understands fake news with regards to war is pretty much, it could be everything that is not confirmed by official Russian sources. So you, even if you as a journalist or as a Russian citizen just providing information that you've picked up on, I don't know, NBC, ABC, any news outlet out there, or just a message from your Ukrainian friend or relative and you publish it online, that could pretty much lead you to a jail time. This is, of course unprecedented. Before that, we had a number of organizations that deal with just, you know, issues of civil society also being eradicated. A year ago, we had um, the leader of the opposition being put in jail. And now some people do uh, interpret that the jail time for Alexei Navalny kind of makes more sense because he was uh, probably the one to take people to the streets the most effective way possible. His infrastructure was also, political infrastructure was destroyed across the country. Most of his 
senior staff are out of country. And we are now, of course, seeing a wave, thousands of Russians uh, fleeing the country, especially the ones who were involved in issues revolving the um, journalism, civil society, but not exclusively. I mean, it's just a lot of Russians fleeing the country. What proportion of the Russian population will notice these changes? Because, I mean, it could be the case, you know, I could hypothesize, maybe it's it's just a sort of small section of urban liberals who look at these websites and newspapers anyway, or might be sharing information about the war that the government might like. And so is it the case that the majority of Russians won't even notice these laws, or, or will this sort of percolate out much, much wider into the Russian population? We don't know exactly how many people will notice and exactly when, but we know for sure that with every, with every passing day, more people will start noticing. And part of the reason is, is quite a sad one, because more Russians would be coming back in caskets and people, parents, mothers would start talking. It's inevitable. And they will be sharing information. They will be demanding explanations. And people will be sharing that information, and uh, it would be impossible to hide that. We are already now seeing the numbers of Russian casualties. I don't know the exact number. I, I don't think the number that Ukrainians are giving is fair. It's probably, I mean, it's wartime. It's probably exaggerated, but even it's, it's a half of that. Even, look, even the Russian official number that was given a week ago that was standing at basically 500 dead and 1,500 wounded, for the first week was still abnormally too much. I mean, nothing that Russia has dealt with since uh, Afghanistan, or well, maybe Chechen war, but I think now we're, it's even worse than Afghan war of the Soviet Union. So this is going to, this is going to be noticeable quite soon. Of course, the, uh, the side effects of sanctions would be noticed much more than the lack of certain media channels. But I want to note that in the first week of the war, the readership of the BBC Russian tripled over the course of the week. So Russians started to search for other opinion, an alternative opinion, something that would explain what's happening because people started doubting the official narrative, especially after the first week since it became evident this is not a short thing, this is not just a special operation. It seems that it's a war, but I mean, of course, the majority of Russians are still... We don't know exactly how they see it. Before the war, we do know the majority, unfortunately, thought that this was kind of NATO's making or it was Ukraine responsible. But the situation is, is, is changing. A lot of fear, uh, of course, um, affects how people answer questions, how they react. Yeah, it seems almost like, and this is, it makes a lot of sense, actually, now, it's almost preemptive, isn't it? So so it might be the case that while now, even if they let these institutions remain open and flourish and they let people protest on the street, it might be the case that there, there would nowhere near be enough people in Russia to put serious pressure on the regime. But it is, as you say, when these bodies start coming back in coffins or when the sanctions start to bite, that's when they're worried that people will say, oh, maybe... Maybe this explanation from Putin doesn't make sense. Maybe I'll look on the internet and try and see what other people are saying. And what they're doing now is setting the scene so that when people do that, there is no alternate information for them to find. Do you think that's, is that the most sensible way of sort of understanding what's going on here? Yeah, of course. There could be a few components. First of all, I thought, considering what they're doing now in Ukraine, it would have made sense for them to just destroy the remnants of the free media before the war started. Still, they gave about like seven, 10 days of 
honest reporting. And I know, uh, you know, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of Russians following the events in Ukraine via those independent channels and getting the, the very different picture uh, from what Russians TV, TV was showing. But uh, of course, it makes sense now that, you know, Kremlin is seeing the operation is not going in according to the plan and it's clearly not going according to the plan to to take out those who might be um, providing the information and giving that information weapons to, to, the, to the people that would want to protest. Again, I would stress that we would see movement of sorts from, from those relatives of Russian soldiers that are being killed now because the explanations that are being given would not work. We know that, uh, for instance, in the case of uh, Russia's Syria campaign, some of them, some of the families were paid handsomely to, to stay kind of quiet uh, about their relatives passing away in the conflict, but there would be nearly uh, enough resources at, and still would be way too many people questioning the situation. One of the kind of indicators of how things are developing was noted by uh, our Russian colleagues following Yandex, a Russian essential version of uh, Google, and um, the searches for list passed away or killed in action and Ukraine normally would, this combination of keywords normally would receive about dozen searches a week. In the first week of the war, uh, this combination of words received more than 40,000 requests coming from Russia. So these are the requests from people who knew that their relative is there fighting. And they were looking whether they are dead or not. And that was only the first week. I mean, I don't know the data for what it is now, but it's probably in the hundreds of thousands. We have been on this show taking very seriously the argument that Putin was, I suppose, understandably threatened by the move eastward by NATO after Russia were essentially told that wouldn't happen. And also sort of the refusal to to allow Russia to integrate into those Western security into that Western security architecture. Do you have any time for that kind of argument? Yeah, that's the most common argument you would he hear coming from the Kremlin. I know it kind of sounds for some reason reasonable, but again, for those who have not followed the story, Russia has been quite fine with NATO for quite a long period of time. Russia even tried to apply to NATO. Not officially, but Putin did speak to Clinton about it. In 2001, Russia provided one of its military base in Ulyanovsk to, uh, to NATO, basically to help conducting operation in Afghanistan. Russia was absolutely fine when the Baltic state and Poland entered NATO, and there was an understanding that this is not going to be an issue of concern. Russia was uh, following the situation for, for quite some time and was using NATO as a pretext to justify sort of the way the regime is formulated at home politically, the way it's evolving. There were multiple opportunities to integrate Ukraine actually in any Russian project for, for a number of years. There are multiple ways to prevent whatever outcome you didn't want to happen in Ukraine in multiple ways. But I think Russia lost Ukraine in 2014, when after the revolution in Kyiv, Russia next part of the Ukrainian territory and then helped begin the war in the east of Ukraine and, well, provided soldiers, provided everything necessary for what eventually became Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Russia did not have a problem with NATO until it decided that it has a problem with NATO. And I think it has to do a lot with not really Russian national security concerns, but 
Putin's own understanding of what was the collapse of the Soviet Union, how things were, what Russia agreed to back then, and how he wants to revise those issues. So it was not about NATO's expansion so much, but about Russia's revision of how things ended and when the Soviet Union collapsed. Putin was quite open about it recently when he spoke about Ukraine and saying that, look, we, it's an artificial state, the Bolsheviks created it, we gave it half, half of this lands, and, you know, it's not really fair, and uh, it's not fair how things ended with the Soviet Union. So, I mean, I don't know how you can argue that bombing the cities in Ukraine now is because NATO was advancing to the east. It's just absurd. I mean, I suppose from my perspective, there's kind of two issues here. So I also think it's, you know, you say, yeah, he was pro-NATO, he's pro-NATO until they said you can't join NATO and then expanded to his borders. You can, you can, that's not an incoherent thing to say. You're fine with NATO so long as you're a member of it. But if it's seen as something which is purely opposed to you, then you start to feel threatened by it. I agree with you, though, on, in, in terms of this invasion of Ukraine, which I didn't expect. I think once you've started shelling Kyiv and a bunch of cities, you can't say this is just a reasonable response to NATO's eastern expansion. This is clearly an exercise in imperialism. But I, I do think there is something to this argument that eastern expansion put pressure on Vladimir Putin, which would have put pressure on many a different Russian president, whatever their politics. If you haven't been let into the military alliance, the military alliance comes to your doorstep. In 2014, there was a Ukrainian leader who was going to, a democratically elected Ukrainian leader who was going to accept a deal with the Russians. Then there was a revolution or a coup, however you want to describe it. He clearly sees it as a coup. You can see he's got some grievances there. That's very different to saying it justifies bombing Kyiv, of course. I do not see how NATO's expansion eastwards was actually a problem for Russia's security. I mean, there are multiple ways you could have cooperated. There are multiple ways you could have um, planned a common security. Of Sure, uh, NATO didn't accept Russia's proposals made, say, by Dmitry Medvedev after Russia-Georgia war of uh, 2008. It was not an ideal world, and Russia did lose the Cold War, the way NATO sees, right? So Russia was not on equal footing and isn't on equal footing with the United States. And some things you have to accept and work around it. But Putin made it into a national obsession that NATO is about to get us. Well, I don't actually see, and no one actually sees it outside of, you know, rhetorical kind of point, like, hey, look at the map. Is NATO, is Russia, and they're moving eastwards. What are other, what is the threat? Aside from Putin saying that hypothetically they could attack us if they come somewhat, you know, kilometers closer to our border. What was it, though? I mean, it is just this big obsession with how the, again, Soviet Union ended and Russia was not recognized as equal. And Putin would want, wanted Russia to be recognized as equal. He tried it doing as, you know, as friend of the West in his eyes and how he understood the situation. Didn't work. He didn't like how, you know, things were developing in the countries near Russia in terms of uh, pro-democratic revolutions and how regimes was changing. And uh, he said, well, look, yeah, we, we're not going to be friends anymore. Let's try this more confrontational way. Tried it for, you know, many years and then just decided to throw away any chessboard or whatever you may call it. And is bombing Ukraine, the country that he says is, you know, brotherly to Russia. He believes Ukrainians and Russians to be the same nation. 
and for some reason we're discussing NATO. I mean, this argument is there, but it's so irrelevant at this point. And we could, again, revisit it and we could argue, let's find something that could actually prove that NATO was a threat to Russia. I do not understand what was the, uh, the NATO threat outside, outside the, the very fact that there's an alliance that is there and it's not actually doing anything. I mean, if you remember what was happening to NATO before 2014, it wasn't actually doing anything. It wasn't actually spending money. It wasn't going beyond the uh, Russia-NATO Act of 1997 in advancing its military infrastructure in Central Eastern Europe. After NATO, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, things did change and NATO started moving things around and you know, became more active. But it was not because of NATO. It was just because of what Russia did. I mean, NATO in 2010 was bombing Libya. So, I mean, NATO was doing things, right? And I, I do think that, that what happened in 2014 well, and then also in Georgia, was Putin was scared about color revolutions, which he saw as being instigated from outsiders, which to some degree they were. Obviously, that's not the whole story, but to some degree they were. Which one? Like the one in Ukraine where people basically tried to elect the president that they wanted to, then the Russian-backed candidate lost and uh, people 2014, I'm talking about 2014. So 2014, Yanukovych was legally elected. He wanted to sign a deal with the Russians because the EU offered him a terrible deal. Then there were street protests, which got incredibly violent, potentially with the involvement of the far right. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't constitutional what happened. I could see why he'd be aggrieved by that. Not that that justifies bombing Kiev, of course. Sure. I mean, you may view that situation this way, but again, coming to, to, to what we have today, does that explain why Putin uh, dislikes NATO and dislikes Ukraine? Well, sure. We, we may say it explains his thinking. Uh, does this help somehow advance Russian national strategic interests? That's a big no in my understanding. Does this help us somehow explain what's happening today? I don't even think so. I mean, what's happening today is beyond concern that, say, Ukraine had a coup d'etat. But, you know, if, if it was coup d'etat and uh, regime change that Russia should have not then recognized the government in Kiev, it did. Uh, I mean, it still does. I mean, Peskov still reminds us every day that, yeah, we do recognize Zelensky as legitimate ruler of Ukraine. They did recognize that. I think we'll we'll part this because the one thing we do agree on is that no grievance justifies what's going on now and the, the the war that Putin has now started goes beyond any of this, even if we have slightly different perspectives on what happened in, in 2014. So let's go back to the present and we're going to talk about some people who are pro-Putin and pro-war now. A new pro-Putin symbol is doing the rounds on social media and on the streets of Russia. It's the letter Z. The Z was initially painted on Russian armoured vehicles moving into Ukraine. Military analysts have suggested that the point of the Z symbol was to protect Russian equipment from friendly fire, with different markings indicating which infantry they belong to. Others have suggested that it stands for Zapobedi, which means victory. But now the symbol is being used to express general support for the war on Ukraine. Russian drivers have started displaying the Z on their cars. The pro-war rally outside Moscow, shown on Russian state TV. You can see the Zs emblazoned on the windows. And business owners have attached it to their vehicles to show that they're Putin supporting. This is a van for a funeral home, though the exact location within Russia is unconfirmed. 
Here's the symbol again, this time painted on a bus stop in St. Petersburg, and it's even appearing at pro-occupation rallies in Serbia. We can also see the Z on an ad in the St. Petersburg metro. The slogan says, we don't leave our own. And these are terminally ill children and their parents outside a hospice in Kazan. They've lined up to form an enormous Z. We can also see now an image which shows Russian soldiers form the letter Z from the badges of killed Ukrainian soldiers. Really grim. And Russians are also being encouraged to display the symbol on their clothes. This is Maria Butina, a former Russian spy who was convicted on espionage charges in the US in 2019 before being deported back to Russia later that year. So encouraging Russians to wear the Z on their clothes. The line at the end apparently means, work brothers, we are with you forever. The symbol has also appeared on the international sporting stage. Russian gymnast Ivan Kuliak won a bronze medal on the parallel bars at the Gymnastic World Cup in Doha, but he was beaten to the gold by Ukrainian Ilya Kovtun. Before stepping onto the podium, Kuliak taped the Z symbol to his chest and stood smirked next to the Ukrainian champion. He's facing disciplinary action from the sport's governing body. Anton, what's your interpretation of this Z movement? How, how big do you judge this to be? Is this a, is this a truly popular movement we're seeing? It's an attempt to market war, that's what it is. It's clearly organized or administered from, from Moscow, from the presidential administration. We've seen seemingly bottom-up things happening across the country for many political cycles, political um, issues happening in Russia. I don't know the, the size of that movement. I mean, we are seeing, of course, it you know, appearing in, uh, in the streets of almost every city, you have some celebrities um, using that symbol, but again, this is nothing compared to your usual. For instance, we only a few years had a somewhat legal procedure that was called referendum uh, about the constitution. Not very legal, not very referendum, just a kind of questionnaire whether you like yeah, the amendments in the constitution. And there was a lot of support by celebrities, TikTokers, YouTubers. In most cases, journalist investigations would tell you that those people were paid for that. Uh, to kind of showcase their support for state cause. I would presume that now we have some groups that, or some people that would get those signs and um, quite uh, voluntarily tape it to their cars as they see it, you know, supporting Russian troops. This is basically what the Americans were doing during the Afghan uh, or Iraq war, you know, with the support of troops. But here they just came up with this Z symbol. I mean, uh, to my taste, is kind of. Uh, fascist-like, and I don't quite see how in, in Russia people don't actually see that in those video clips, the ones that you show, for instance, or there are a few others where basically you have someone screaming something angrily and a crowd of people there in lines ready to go. This is an attempt to, to show the widespread support for the cause, but from talking to people across, across the nation, I know that there are a lot of people who don't like the symbol and I don't like what it represents. But again, as I've noticed before, there's the situation of fear and uh, getting into conflict over these Z stuff is something that a lot of people will try to avoid. I suppose you've said you, you don't see how people don't realize it looks a bit fascistic, but is, is that potentially the direction this is going in? Because I mean, one interpretation was that Putin wanted to win this war quite quickly. He didn't think there would have to be a sort of popular mobilization and for Russia to enter into a sort of total war scenario. 
But now it looks like it's going to be a bit tougher. He's going to need more people to fight. It's going to take more resources. The sanctions are going to kick in. And now he does need to create a sort of total war society whereby there is sort of widespread buy-in to this war. He can't just say, oh, it's something that's going on in there in Ukraine. It's going to be a special operation with just a few soldiers. We'll win it quickly. Don't worry about it. Now he has to say, okay, this is a massive war. You're all going to have to be involved. Let's get involved. Is this the kind of operation we're going to see now from from Putin going forward? Well, we've already seen a number of state officials saying that, look, we have to stand behind our leader. This is the time to stay united. We have to be, you know, one people, one nation, one cause, um, that type of rhetoric. So it is inevitable. As, of course, they will try to mobilize and they're already trying to, to mobilize the population. The propaganda, kind of using all the all and every um, comparison to World War II, Russia's fight with Nazis as kind of this essential uh, fight of good versus evil and Russians, of course, being the good here and uh, Ukrainians or not actually the Ukrainians, but the, the Nazis that or the, the Americans that are using the Nazis in Ukraine to fight Russia and Russians are fighting those Nazis, but they're also fighting Americans at the same time who kind of represent the evil. So they're trying to to get those narratives into the um, widespread public and by showing their support, it kind of creates the illusion that Russian society is ready to endure what it has to endure. Well, in fact, I think, and I know for a fact that the, the vast majority of Russians have no idea what is coming, at least in terms of the uh, economic costs of the war, because sanctions introduced have been absolutely unprecedented. Let's go on to our final story about Russian politics, which is whether or not Vladimir Putin could be toppled. If there were any doubts before, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shown Vladimir Putin to be a dangerous man. And given the invasion hasn't quite gone to plan so far, there is talk in the air of regime change. Could the death of soldiers fighting in a war they weren't prepared for lead to a popular revolt? Or could sanctions on Russia's elites provoke a palace coup? On the latter... The Times report that a leaked cable suggests senior officers in the Russian security services may be uncomfortable with Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. The cable complains that the FSB were being blamed for the failures of the invasion, while in fact they had been given no prior warning, so were unable to prepare. And it says that the only option for Russia now is defeat. We can go to some of the text. The letter said that Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader and an ally of Putin, was on the verge of outright conflict with the Russians after his hit squad sent to kill President Zelensky was destroyed by Ukrainian forces. Even if Zelensky were killed, the report said Russia would have no hope of occupying Ukraine. Even with minimum resistance from the Ukrainians, we'd need over half a million people, not including supply and logistics workers. It goes on, the author said they could not rule out international conflict and that we're expecting some effing advisor to convince the leadership to send an ultimatum to the West threatening war if sanctions were not lifted. What if the West refuses, they wrote, in that instance, I won't exclude that we will be pulled into a real international conflict, just like Hitler in 1939. Elsewhere in the letter, they said, our position is like Germany in 1943 to 44, but that's our starting position. Anton, when I see leaks like this from Britain, from my own country, I sometimes struggle how serious, you know, to, to work out how seriously I should take them. How seriously would you take this particular leak? Do you think this is genuinely the attitude at the top of the FSB, so the Russian security services? No, I think it's it's a fake. Uh, we know for a fact that FSB or 
heavily involved in doing all sort of uh, research in Ukraine prior to the war. They are the backbone of this operation. They are definitely, they were definitely in the loop. They knew what was going to happen. The fact that they are miscalculated and they made a lot of mistakes uh, shouldn't be a surprise. It wouldn't be the first time. They're not perfect. They're not kind of omnipotent. This type of leak should indicate that there's sort of a struggle with the regime. There was another leak or another rumor, I would say, circulating on Twitter that Shoigu is allegedly thinking of overthrowing Putin because, you know, he didn't sign up for this. I would think this is pure nonsense because none of that sounds realistic. Both the military, well, not the military, maybe, maybe they are not the most satisfied with what is happening now at the moment, especially the lower you would go on the military chain of command. But the FSB are definitely benefiting from the situation. They are taking, they are basically dominating the political situation in Russia in terms of general political environment. They have green light to do whatever they think necessary with Russian kind of business. Now there is talk of nationalizing some of the, um, some of the property of foreign entities that are leaving Russia. There are plenty of, of work for them. If Russia does, in fact, occupy some of the Ukrainian territory, they would be the ones fighting all the insurgents there when the situation is pacified. pacified. For now, they have plenty of work to, in, in Russia to fight the uh, those who oppose the war and those who would be uh, thinking of uh, starting protesting and that type of thing. So... Uh, FSB is the least likely source of uh, coup d'etat in Russia. Same with the military. I mean, we don't really have that in, in, in the history of Russian military to be that active since very early. In, well, not early, I think it was the 18th century for the last time, but really it's not the kind of Latin America type of, uh, type of situation. I think we are looking at what essentially happened to, to Stalin. People feared him and feared what he could do. And he did show that his own Security Council fears him uh, on that famous uh, meeting he had with the Security Council when they discussed what to do with uh, Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. And they've all said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, we support your decision. Kind of became the, the uh, parts of, of that Russian plan. So I think why it resembles Stalin is essentially they would be waiting fearing that each each of them who might hypothetically think that Russia would be better off without Putin because, you know, it's clear that with Putin, we're not going to end the story. The story is never going to end. Russia is never going to get back from uh, from the bottom it is, it is currently heading at. Even that they think, hypothetically think of taking him down, you, they'd be thinking that the other might be wrong to cooperate with because they would tell it to Putin. So I think they would be just waiting for him to go down on his own and then strike a strike a deal somehow to find whoever is going to be the next guy to repair, repair the situation. The other thing, the popular protests could be anticipated, but again, this one will take a lot of time. It will take a lot of time of economic struggle and hardship on the one hand and you know human loss for the protest potential to gather. Plus, the repressive machine is, has been training for this hypothetical for years. There's still plenty of resources to maintain this repressive machine, so I wouldn't be 
I wouldn't be waiting for something major to uh, to change within Kremlin in a few years at least. Let's finish by talking about the effect of sanctions. As you've you know in- indicated, they are pretty unprecedented. The reserves of the central bank frozen, and loads and loads of different corporations not just suspending trade with Russia, but suspending all operations. One of the latest two companies to do this is Visa and Mastercard, um, which will you know, make payment much more difficult for obvious reasons. I want to get up a tweet from Leonid Rogozin, who we've had on the show before. So he tweeted about Visa and Mastercard being suspended in Russia. Not sure it will make Putin stop the war, but it kills the chances for political change in Russia for now, because people who form the backbone of protest movement will be cut from resources focused on survival. It's North Korea on steroids that can sustain itself indefinitely. So Leonid Rogozin's take there that at least that particular part of the sanctions, or I suppose that's not actually not the sanctions, that's kind of a decision by Visa and MasterCard to do that, could backfire. Do you think that sanctions and these decisions being made by corporations could potentially, you know, make the more liberal elements within the Russian population weaker than they otherwise would be? Do you think this could backfire or do you think this is necessary? I think it was inevitable. That's what, what's important here. I mean, considering what is happening in Ukraine, considering what stance the United States and Europe took, it was inevitable that it's going to, Russians are going to suffer the, without uh, discrimination, essentially, whether they were liberal, whether they supported, did not support the cause. A lot of those sanctions would, in fact, uh, hit Russians quite hard. It would make it hard to to manage. It would, it would be the worst, actually, for the middle class, where you have the most uh, liberals or just people that are skeptical towards the government. But again, I don't see how it could have been another way. I mean, I, I don't see how it was could have been possible to target only the ones, say, that support Putin or only the decision makers. The, it is essentially economic warfare against Russia because the West could not retaliate with actual warfare because Russia made it clear that that would be you know, cause for, for nuclear war. With regards to Leonid's comments, I do think that we will have at least the attempts of Russian propaganda to, to make all of those sanctions sound as if they are not in response to Russia's actions and Russia's crimes in Ukraine, but it's just simply tools the West used to punish Russia for being uh, Russia. That's essentially what Putin has already said in his address, that the sanctions introduced against Russia are introduced because because we are strong, because they fear us, because they want to stop our reclaimment of what is ours. So this will be used by the propaganda for sure. I don't know how effective that would be. It would depend on how deep would be the, the dive in, uh, in the economy. I don't think Russia can sustain North Korea because we had these 30 years of not having the Soviet Union, of not having North Korea and living in all things considering a relatively free-ish society at least for a part of the term of 30 years. So I don't think it is possible to, to do North Korea or any attempt at that would be very short. I don't think it's sustainable. I would probably dispute that the Soviet Union is the same as North Korea, but I think we could leave that for another hour-long conversation. So, um, well, I didn't I thought... say that. I didn't <laughs> say that Soviet Union was North Korea, but Soviet Union was definitely not a free society. Yeah, you you didn't have freedom of of the press, of course. 
Anton Barbashin, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really do appreciate it. Lots of lots of, of really interesting insight there. So, so thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. We're going to end the show with one story from the UK, although, of course, related to the invasion of Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created what the UN have called the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. In under two weeks, almost two million people have fled the country. Many um, travel from one side of the country to the other using a mix of trains, cars and often covering great distances on foot. Most are women, men or fighting age being required to stay behind, travelling alone with their children through dangerous territory. All seems an incredibly awful situation for anyone to find themselves in. This map from the Financial Times shows where they've gone. So most have gone to Poland, 1 million are there, 180,000 have gone to Hungary, 150,000 to Russia, and 83,000 to Moldova. You can also see that on that map that 184 people have travelled to other European countries. That includes Britain, which as of this weekend has accepted a grand total of 50 Ukrainian refugees. This is despite 10,000 Ukrainians having already applied under the family links scheme. The difficulties faced by Ukrainian family members of British citizens was explained by David Carter, who lived with his family in Ukraine until war broke out. They fled at the start of the war, intending to come to the UK. His account here starts when they arrived in Krakow in Poland. She said, you need to go to the nearest point of the UK VI. Uh, I said, right, where's that? She said, there's one in Belgium. So we travelled from Krakow to Belgium, uh, we went to the centre, it opened at eight o'clock, quarter past eight, we was there for quarter to eight, all four of us. Um, I explained the situation, they was like, we don't know nothing about this, there's, there's nothing being told to us, there's nothing being said to us, we're waiting for information to come uh, from England uh, to update our records. I said, look, can, can we get, I said, it says on here that we, we, we need to come here to download the biometrics. We need the biometrics doing. They, they give all two children and, and the wife the biometrics. They put me in priority next day bags and said, you will have your visa within 48 hours. So we stayed another two nights in, in uh, Belgium. I went to the office the, the, next, the next morning to see if there was any news. And he said, unfortunately, we've heard nothing back from the UK whatsoever. I said, okay, then we'll go to Calais. So we waited in a ho hotel in Calais. Subsequently from then, um, I thought, right, I I'm, I'm just going to go down and book a ferry and, and just drive on as normal. I'm a UK citizen. I've got a UK passport. This is my wife. This is my children. I'm stuck in Calais. I've been in this hotel for the past two nights. And when I went to the border control in, in Calais, I booked a ferry. The French people let me through. They let me through. But then you come to the UK border in Calais. Uh, and, and they said, I'm sorry, you can't get on a ferry. Uh, we'll escort you back up to the office. So while Poland welcomed one million Ukrainians with open arms, that's with or without Polish relatives, UK consulates across the continent are telling British Ukrainian families, computer says no. Adding insult to injury, when refugees turn up at Calais, as David Carter did, they're told that they have to return to Paris or Brussels to complete their visa applications. On Good Morning Britain, Susanna Reid pointed out the problem to Foreign Office Minister James Cleverly in very human terms. 
If I am fleeing with my children for my life, and the majority of these people will be women and children, not men of fighting age, because we know that they're being told to stay behind to defend their country. If I arrived at Calais this morning, but I didn't have a visa that had been processed, would there be a place at Calais to process my visa, or would I be told to go back to Paris or Brussels to apply? Because bearing in mind, at that point, I would be utterly broken. Well, look, I completely, I completely understand the, the emotional reaction that all of us have got when we see the images of people fleeing conflict and trying to get to the UK. We are making sure that the, the, the way to get to the UK is, is quick, it is easy. Hey, Mr. Cleverly, I'm just trying to press the point. If I've got as far as Calais, will I be told to go somewhere else before I'm issued a visa, or will that be issued in Calais? It's a simple question. Well, as I say, visas are issued through embassies. Our embassy in France is in Paris. But if there needs to be an evolution process, of course we will look at what that looks like. It's just not an answer, is it? I mean, sure, maybe you'll have to spend or send a few Home Office staff down, down to Calais. Fine, just do it. Poland have processed one million people. Earlier, Priti Patel proudly defended her broken system. As of today, only 50 have been approved. So given the desperation, how is it acceptable that only 1% of UK visa applications have been granted? Are you making it too difficult? So actually, actually no. On the contrary, we've had over 10,000 people apply in 40, 48 hours. Um, the scheme opened on Friday, opened in, on Friday afternoon. I was in Poland, actually, on the border um, when we launched the scheme. Let's be clear, this is the first scheme in the world that's up and running in this short period of time. 10,000 applications and yes, grants are happening as we stand here right now. So maybe the Home Secretary is right. Maybe it is the first system of its kind in the world to be up and running. But countries like Poland, Moldova and Romania seem to be doing fine without such a system. They've simply opened their borders to their neighbours, welcoming them on an unrestricted temporary basis. And the EU as a whole is proposing a blanket right to stay and work for all people fleeing Ukraine for up to three years across all 27 states with access to social services, housing and healthcare. This is what Ukrainians crossing the border into Slovakia are handed on arrival. The leaflet welcomes all citizens of Ukraine and families of Ukrainian citizens and provides them with a temporary protection order immediately. It applies whether or not they have any identity documents with them, an acknowledgement of the fact that people are running for their lives. And I wanted to draw attention to this bit at the bottom. Accommodation, food, healthcare and hygiene packages will be provided straight away and free of charge. The GDP of Slovakia was, by the way, $105 billion in 2020. The GDP of the UK was $2.7 trillion, 25 times higher. There's also a lot of confusion within the government about how best to handle the crisis. When asked about the mere 50 applications that have so far been processed, Liz Truss pointed the finger at Patel. How many additional visas have been given to uh, uh, Ukrainians since the invasion began by the UK? Uh, I, don't, I don't have the figure, but I think the, it's home, 50. Yeah, the home secretary it's 50. Uh, announced that. Yeah. Are you not ashamed by that? Well, the Home Secretary has announced two routes. Uh, one is the family visa route and the other is uh, the sponsorship route. And I know the Home Office are working very hard to issue visas. You're not ashamed that, that other countries are taking in 
tens and tens of thousands. And we, who have known longer than any of the other countries that this was going to happen and should have been preparing for it, and your department should have been preparing for it, we've only managed to give out 50 visas so far. Well, I can assure you, Chris, that we have been preparing for it. We've been preparing for it since uh, well before the end of last year. That's where we sent our forward deployment teams to locations in Poland, Slovakia, to provide direct support to people leaving Ukraine. Well, it's really a matter for the Home Secretary exactly how the visa process works. So I suggest no, that you... No, part of done by you, isn't it? It's part of it's done by your department. The, 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 um, it's not. People have it's to a, come to you. Home. People have to come to your post to be able to get, as they did in Afghanistan, it was exactly the same issue, to get their biometric um, details taken. I believe that's a Home Office responsibility that operates out of our post. In response to that criticism from the Foreign Secretary, the Home Office source told The Guardian that they were investigating a third humanitarian route to UK asylum. So they said, As the crisis is developing, it is becoming clear some people have needs that go beyond what sponsorship can offer, and she does not want to see anyone excluded. So that's a reference to Priti Patel. Hence why a separate humanitarian route is being considered with partner governments. But the Prime Minister's spokesperson knocked that suggestion on the head, saying, we have set out the two routes we are putting in place. The sponsorship route is a humanitarian one. The sponsorship route allows individual Ukrainians to come to the UK if sponsored by a third party, like a business or a local authority. Given people are fleeing war right now, that sounds like a lot of red tape. The clusterfuck hasn't prevented Priti Patel turning this humanitarian crisis into a propaganda tool. The British people have come together remarkably to really stand with Ukraine, to help everyone that's in a terrible situation fleeing Ukraine right now. I'm here at the Ukrainian embassy in London and I've just spent some time this afternoon with the Ukrainian ambassador, but with the community, with the community very much seeing their remarkable efforts when it comes to donations and how they are supporting people fleeing Ukraine in their this terrible time of desperate, desperate need. But at the same time, we've been speaking about how people can come to the United Kingdom and really just working together, listening in terms of the practical ways in which we can support, how we can help to get more people over to the United Kingdom. You could help people get over to the United Kingdom by informing your overseas consulates how people might actually gain access to the UK instead of telling them computer says no. Finally, for his part, Boris Johnson has been firm in his refusal to adopt a policy like the EU, where Ukrainian passport holders get an automatic right to stay for three years. What we won't do, let me be very clear, what we won't do is have a system where people can come into uh, the UK without any checks or any uh, controls at all. I don't think that is the right approach. Uh, but what we will do is have a, a system that is very, very generous. As, as the situation in, in Ukraine deteriorates, people are going to want to see this country uh, open our arms to people fleeing uh, persecution, fleeing a war zone. I think people uh, who have spare rooms, who, uh, who want to uh, receive people coming from Ukraine, will want us to, uh, to have a system that enables them Is that to the do that. It's just so pathetic. You know, it, it obviously makes me angry seeing that, but more it just makes me, I don't pity them, of course, I just find it incredibly embarrassing. When the Syrian civil war happened and there was a refugee a refugee crisis, there was a, a need of millions of refugees to be housed in, in, in safe places, in safe countries, because there was a war going on where they were. 
there was a crisis on the borders of Europe. Angela Merkel doesn't really share my politics, but this was a very brave thing to do. She said, we're a strong country, we can manage. We're a strong country, we can manage. And she let over a million Syrians settle in Germany. Now, that wasn't an easy decision for her, and it did have some political blowbacks. It created you know, a threat from the right with the alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party. There were a few instances of terrorism, even though they were, I think, in nearly all cases, not committed by people who had actually come over. There were political difficulties that came with that, but she said, we're a strong country, we will manage. And now what has happened is you had over a million refugees, the vast majority very well integrated into German society. That policy, which people initially said was going to be the end of her career, is now popular. The majority of people in Germany think that was a good decision because her politics was to say, we're a strong country, we can manage. Boris Johnson's politics is to say, even if there is the most damaging humanitarian crisis we've had in in Europe for a generation, we're still going to have to do the checks and balances. We're still going to have to see all of the various forms before we give anyone safety in this country. Why? We're a big, strong country. We're a big, strong country with a big GDP. Why can we not say, come here first, and then within your first month, go and register at the Home Office? Right? That would be a pretty easy thing to do. Instead, we're saying, we can't possibly as a country bear to have anyone here without having, you know, checked them first and ticked all the boxes first, even if that means that someone with their immediate family, they've all just fl fled from Ukraine. They're going to have to stay in hotels in Belgium and France. Why can Belgium and France have these people in their country without them having ticked all of these boxes first? What makes Britain so special, so pathetic, that we have to say, oh, we're going to have to do this the normal way. Sorry. Sorry if that means you're going to have to wait. Pretty Patel bragging. Oh, we've set up this really bureaucratic system quicker than everyone else. That's because the other people didn't set up the bureaucratic system because they realized it's completely inappropriate in this situation to make people, I was listening to it on the radio, they have to get their biometric data, all of these various, you know, really, really red tapey things that is just really, really appalling to enforce on people in, in this particular situation. And it is, as well as being outrageous, as well as being inhumane, it is also just fundamentally pathetic. You know, it was the same with this Syrian story as well, by the way. Germany let in over a million people. Britain, I think, housed about 20,000 people. And still we kept saying, oh, we're doing so much. Oh, how can we possibly, you know, it's still a, a huge news story, like society was about to collapse because we'd let in, what's 20,000 compared to a million? That maths is too difficult for me right now. One fiftieth, I'm going to have to work that out afterwards. A small proportion of the million people that Germany let in, and we're saying our society is going to collapse. By the way, I'm talking about Germany because it's a very similar country to us. Lebanon, a much smaller country, a much poorer country, settled a million Syrian refugees. And they didn't talk about society collapsing. It's absolutely pathetic. Let's wrap up there. Thanks for watching our show tonight. Of course, we'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tiski Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.